Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios. Chico Life Ready, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening, where we have the honor and privilege to continue a study on the book of Revelation. And I am most excited tonight because I have the opportunity to welcome back Derek Allen. Derek has not been with us for quite some time, but he is here in studio. So Derek, it is great to have you back. Yeah, it's great to be back. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to be back in the uh, studio with you, Joe. And this is the first time that you will be joining me on this topic of Revelation. Now, you were with me in our treatment of theology of the body, and our God is always providential, right? Because <laughs> as it Absolutely. turns out, as it turns out, tonight's subject matter, I think, is going to have us considering some various aspects of theology of the body. So I am excited about that tonight. And as always, I do welcome all of you listeners out there who are tuning in by way of podcast, just not uh, locally, but internationally. Uh, if you are listening in the countries of uh, Mexico, Canada, Italy, France, Portugal, Spain, I welcome you. If you are tuning in in Brazil, Argentina, Chile, it really is an honor that you are taking time out of your busy schedule. I see you on the grid. And and to reflect with me on this all-important topic of the book of Revelation, it really is an honor and a privilege to engage the subject matter that is so rich and so humbling. Right? Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> so humbling. And these past few days, Derek, we have been talking about Mary. We've been talking about Mary because Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, which I'm going to go ahead and read, and, and we'll reflect a little more on Mary, and then we will transition out of that into the other aspect of the woman, uh, the woman as we know, the church. So this is Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. And a great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with a sun, with a moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was with child, and she cried out in her pangs of birth in anguish for delivery. So, Derek, to hear those verses, to read those verses, one cannot help but think of the woman as Mary, right? Uh, over the past few nights, we have looked at Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, and in the light of the richness of those verses, we considered the Virgin of Guadalupe, right? She's dressed with the sun, she's got the moon under her feet, and the, the crown of 12 stars. How can you not think of Our Lady of Guadalupe? And, and also, we considered Mary as Queen Mother. There she's wearing the crown, and Mary as the Ark of the New Covenant, where she holds the presence of God uh, within her. So, on Monday evening... And on Tuesday evening, we really carved out two sessions to just focus in on Mary. And before we get into the woman, not just as Mary, but also the church, I know you wanted to reflect briefly on the woman as Mary, as I know she is so close to your heart, Derek. And it's incredibly providential that Revelation 11 ends on that last verse, talking about how the temple of God is opened. And what do we see? We see the Ark of the Covenant what is the Ark of the Covenant but the thing that carries the Word of God in the Old Testament, the actual Ark carrying the tablets, of course, in the New Testament, Mary being that new Ark physically carrying the baby Jesus in her mm -hmm, womb. Mm -hmm. And there's no way, in my mind, you know, growing up around the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe, seeing it, of course, in St. John's downtown on 4th and Chestnut, 
it, there's no way I can read those first two verses of chapter 12 and not think of that image just with, um, you know, the imagery of Mary standing and the stars over her shawl, so to speak, as she stands there and presented in that image, just, you know, in my mind, the two go so well together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, too, for the time that the vision, you know, that Our Lady of Guadalupe appears to Juan Diego, I think certainly at that time people would have also thought of the book of Revelations. And for the people of Mexico, especially for the natives, how that would have been a new advent, a new coming mm. of Christ into their lives. Mm. Yeah, and to read of the woman is also to be mindful of, well, what else? <laughs> where else do we read of the woman? But in the book of Genesis, Genesis 3.15, where the woman is crushing the serpent's head, and also in John, right? In the Gospel mm-hmm. of John, the wedding feast at Cana, woman. In John 19, uh, um, on the crucifix, what does the Lord say? Woman. So it is right that we read of the woman, because who is authoring the book of Revelation? But John the Evangelist. We read the book of Revelation, Derek, mindful of the whole of sacred scripture. And to bring up the wedding feast of Cana, I don't think it's something that we realize. We see these great times in scripture where Jesus named something, especially you think of St. Peter going from Simon to Peter and upon this rock I will build my church. And to some extent, we don't always see the wedding feast of Cana. Jesus could have said, mom, Jesus could have used a number of words, but specifically the word woman, um, I think also echoing that she is the new Eve, mm-hmm. that she is the, the, you know, the woman to idealize, the woman to strive to be like. Yeah, amen. And maybe for some of our listeners, Derek, they might be thinking, well, isn't that a title of disrespect, woman? Certainly we hear that today, and that, that's Absolutely. how we interpret it, right? But in fact, in antiquity, the title woman was not a sign of disrespect, but a sign and a term of endearment and respect and honor and privilege. To say woman is to identify the woman you're talking to with a great deal of respect. So when Jesus does that, yes, he's identifying Mary as the new Eve, and he's identifying Mary as the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. But he's also (laughs) endearing himself to his own mother, and that should never be overlooked the priority there of our Lord honoring the fourth commandment. Right? Mm-hmm, absolutely. <laughs> we should never forget that, that Jesus Christ is, uh, in his human form, of course, the son of Mary. And that miracle at Cana would not have happened without whose intercession on yes. behalf of the couple, yes. Mary. Yes, that's They're right. They're out of wine, you know, help them. And then, of course, Jesus says, well, what, what business is this of mine? But then immediately helps them. Her words and intercession do whatever he tells you, as we've been noting over the past few nights, the last words of Mary recorded in Scripture bring about what? Divinity. Mm-hmm. Mary mediates divinity. And that certainly is what is at the heart of the Marian message. She takes on that intercessory role, mediating divinity. And so when we have the title woman in the book of Revelation, yes, we are made to think about this within the context of not only John, but also Genesis. Well, and like the moon reflects the light of the sun, what light does Mary reflect? The sun, S-O-N. Yes, yes, and that's a beautiful reflection. I know Fulton Sheen spent a great deal of time with that beautiful reflection, and it's one to help us appreciate the dynamic uh, and the relationship between Jesus and Mary, that this is a very real relationship 
that is to draw us deeper into the inner life of the Trinity. Do we treat Mary as a deity? No. Do we treat Mary as a goddess? No. But do we see Mary as one who has a very unique relationship with God the Father, her own Son, and of course, the Holy Spirit that overshadowed her? Yes, emphatically and absolutely. And we honor that. We respect that. So these past few nights, as we've been reflecting into Mary, we've been hammering that home. And and even in your own reflections, Derek, we are being made to think about the importance of Mary in her own Christian walk. These are truths that are embedded in sacred Scripture. Absolutely. These are truths that are embedded in sacred Scripture, and we are certainly just peeling back the layers, <laughs> peeling back the layers. Now, speaking of layers, Derek, to talk about the woman in the book of Revelation is to not exclusively talk about it just within the context of Mary, but to also include a reflection on, on the church. Now, the image of a sign, or important as it is read in the Greek, of a woman giving birth recalls certainly Isaiah's famous prophecy, something we haven't actually talked about in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that reads, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. But this is not the only allusion to Isaiah found in Revelation 12. Derek, one of the things that we have been really hammering home is how the book of Revelation fulfills some of the major prophecies in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, certainly Daniel. Yes, this is something that that already has been fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem. And yes, while there's an aspect of the book of Revelation that has yet to be fulfilled within that context of the end of times, this has been fulfilled. And so we interpret it as such. And so with that, we find ourselves studying Isaiah, reflecting into Isaiah. And this is what we have here. Because the image of a woman giving birth is also reminiscent of the image that Isaiah uses to describe the restoration of God's people. Isaiah depicted Israel, who we will talk about here in a bit, Derek, on the verge of restoration as a woman in labor. Now listen to this, Isaiah chapter 26, verse 17. Like a woman with child who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near her time. At the end of his Uh, book, he again uses similar imagery. That is uh, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 66, verse 7. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she was delivered of a son. So what can we say then of these labor pains more specifically? Well, in John 16, our Lord explains his passion in terms of a what? A woman in travail, a woman giving birth. He says in verse 21, when a woman is in travail, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she is delivered of the child, she no longer remembers the anguish. So the woman's travail then is a symbol of what, Derek? But a symbol for the passion, the suffering through which the redemption comes, of course. And I think to some aspect from the author of Revelation's perspective, from John's point of view, what was happening at this time? The persecution of Christians. In the early church, we can see that death, we can see that sorrow as being those labor pains. Mm-hmm. And as the church passes through that period of history, the church, the church really begins to spread throughout the world and flourish. And that's so important to reflect upon because ultimately it takes what is going on in sacred scripture and applies to our very concrete reality. 
Michael Barber, author of Coming Soon, uh, Derek, that I've been going through, has this to say. Furthermore, not only did Isaiah prophesy that daughter Zion would be the mother of those redeemed from the nations, he also mentions that God will marry her and her sons. Daughter Zion is both virgin bride and fruitful mother. Listen to these words from Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5. For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, (laughs) so shall God rejoice over you. And so what we're talking about is ultimately the consummation of two. I had mentioned from the outset we might be talking about theology of the body. A point to be had, a very important point to be had here, Derek, is what the word revelation actually means in the Greek, apocalypsus. It means a number of things, but a lead point is to understand it translated as unveiling, and not as just one moment where you lift the veil, but the crowning moment of a series of events. If I was reading the book of Revelation, Derek, in the first century, I interpret the apocalypsis, the unveiling, as this seven-day event where the groom gets to know the bride's family and and the bride gets to know the groom's family. And on the seventh day, the groom takes the bride, lifts her up in this canopy, and they go into this tent. Of course, it's honeymoon night, so he lifts the veil. But as you and I both know, Derek, more than a veil is being lifted. The idea in principle is to become one. This is why we're reflecting into Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5, and the other Isaiah passages, because they capture this very deep bridal imagery. Well, and what was our Lord's passion but the, neptu- the nuptial embrace of the, for the church? Yes. Christ mm. on the cross embracing his people, drawing them into himself, sin and all, for our redemption. Amen. And to talk about travail, to talk about birth pangs, to talk about labor, is to talk about new life. Absolutely. And we have new life when two become one. I vaguely remember, Derek, you and I having a similar conversation, and those words, it is finished, can also be translated as what? In the Latin, consummatum est, it is consummated, right? Something very important to that deeper bridal imagery. Because in the light of that, yes, we can better appreciate that when Christ is giving birth to this church, this sacramental church, and he's giving birth to it in this travail, in this pain as blood and water is flowing from his side, right? Blood symbolizing Eucharist and water symbolizing baptism. We are now made to enter into this new temple, this new church. Which, of course, bringing back to sort of the theology of our body, what does the family represent? You have the, you have the father who loves the mother, who loves the father, and then that love is a third person, yeah, perfectly mirroring the Holy Trinity. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, to talk about the importance of the sacramental church is to talk about the importance of the church as we know it today. I, I never hesitate to share what I believe to be a most fascinating fact, Derek, that there are 346,000 priests in the world. Okay. 346,000 priests. That's a lot of priests, okay? Yeah. If every priest is doing what they ought to do, saying Mass every day, what does that mean? Well, 
at the very least, it means that four hosts are being consecrated every second of every day. Four hosts are being consecrated every second of every day. That means <laughs> every second of every day, the church is entering into this bridal union with Christ. And I believe that to be a most powerful thing because ultimately it does sustain us. It sustains us to be who we are called to be. In the light of what you were talking about earlier, this is just not abstract theology. No, this is concrete. This is real. We are called to share in the great mystery of Christ on the cross. We too, as we suffer, are to offer our suffering to God. And how prophetic of John to see the events of his day, you know, the conquering of the Holy Land by the Roman Empire, to see that happen and to think this is the church, that this is those beginning moments of the church and to show sort of that the beauty of Scripture is both starting in the beginning in Genesis and then ending in Revelation and just bringing up those same themes again. In the Gospel of John, the first two chapters describe our Lord's mission in terms of what? A new creation, right? Much like Isaiah describes the restoration of Israel in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 22. There are many parallels, Derek, between John and the book of Genesis, and it's relevant to our reflection because it really highlights John's emphasis on what Christ was about in establishing a new creation. If you were to ask me what is the most important theme to St. Paul, it is that Christ has come to establish a new creation. A new creation that, in the eyes of Paul, was no longer inclusive to God's chosen people. Yes. No longer inclusive to the descendants of Israel and his sons, but inclusive to the entire world, yes. to the Gentiles, to the slaves, to the Greeks, to everyone. Yeah, and to talk about that is to talk about the covenant that God had established with the Old Testament people, with the Israelites, and that was a national covenant. What is the Eucharist? What is baptism? But the signs of the new covenant— the new covenant that is international, that is global, that is essentially Catholic mindful, that the word Catholic in the Greek, katholike, literally translates as universal. This Absolutely. is a universal covenant that God has come to establish in the water and blood that flowed from his side. So you see these images and these symbols kind of coming back. Why? Because they signify that all-important and overarching truth that God is madly in love with us, and he seeks us out <laughs> yep. to enter into this bridal union with our very souls. And I think to some extent, you know, speaking of the woman's pains, those aren't also alluding to Christ on the cross and his passion, but also to an extent our passion, our own sufferings that we unite with his. Because it's not easy to be a Christian. And it certainly wasn't in the time of John when Revelation was written. You know, in that in that first century, when there was so much persecution, mm -hmm. nor is it any easier for us, and it demands sacrifice. Just like I'm sure any mother would say, giving birth isn't easy. It demands sacrifice. And not only does it demand sacrifice, but again, <laughs> after you give birth, there's a sense of joy. Absolutely, a joy that would not be known without the sacrifice. And I think that's important for us too here, Derek, because. All throughout the epistles, we do hear within the same verse the importance of suffering so that we might receive joy. Or as 2 Peter 3.14 says, rejoice in your sufferings. 
well, isn't that bit of a, an oxymoron? You don't oh, rejoice in your suffering. Well, yes, you do within the stream of thought that we are talking now. And it's, you know, Paul's reference to runners, running the race and training. Sure, the training is difficult. Sure, running is difficult. But then towards the end of his life, towards those later letters, what does Paul say to Timothy? I have finished the race. Yeah. He yeah. knows that his time has come to an end, but he also knows the work that God has brought about in his life, the suffering he's endured. And whenever I hear that or read it, I can almost, you, you know, it's almost as if Paul can see heaven before him. Mm-hmm. He just has to endure a little bit. The finish line is there. Yeah, we have this sense of satisfaction, materially speaking, if we study long hours so as to get the good grade, if we work out so as to achieve whatever trophy it is that we're, we're working towards. But what we're talking about here in relationship to the joy on the other side of suffering, Derek, is more than an earthly satisfaction, because it's something that is endowed with grace. It is something that is endowed with the plentitude of grace, which is joy. Remember, that the word grace, caris, is the same root to the word joy. That is why in the angelic salutation from the angel Gabriel to Mary and the kekaritomene, we translate that as rejoice, O highly favored one, or hail full of grace, because rejoice and grace essentially are the same word. So when our sufferings are endowed with grace, what's on the other side of that but joy? The joy that comes with knowing that you are doing the will of the Father. The joy that comes in knowing, Derek, that you have done something special with and for um, God the Father. This might sound like spiritual talk to some of our listeners, but in reality, I think most of our listeners get what we're talking about, because no matter what we do, if it's, if it's pricking our finger or if it's having to deal with the ravages of cancer, suffering will come our way. Absolutely. And to the degree that we offer up that suffering and we go to the master and we say, take the suffering is to the degree that it will be used for what it needs to be used for. John Paul II liked to talk about the usefulness of suffering, the usefulness of our suffering, because so many people see it as useless. No, it's useful, he says. It's useful to the extent that you conform your suffering in faith to our Lord on the cross. And you know, to relate back to the suffering of the early church, of the apostles, knowing that God was going to bring something from that. You alluded to, you know, the life that priests live, a life of sacrifice for the good of the church. You know, there's no doubt in my mind that the sacrifice that priests choose to make through their vows of celibacy, through their ordination, sustain the church. Mm -hmm. That without our clergy, the church would not be what it is from the day to day. As uh, Padre Pio once put it, if you remove the priest, you don't have the Catholic Church. Because ultimately, when you have no Eucharist, you don't have the very things we have been talking about as it relates to this relationship that God seeks out with us. Because it is through the hands of the priest that we have the privilege and the honor, Derek, to receive the Eucharist. Um, I did, Derek, before we wrap up this evening, want to talk at least a little bit about what John has to say, and specifically to how he is developing in his own language this idea of new creation. If you were to go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and John chapter 1, verse 1, in both accounts we read, in the beginning. We read in chapter 1 of Genesis and chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, uh, of life, of light and darkness, 
As Genesis describes God's Spirit moving over the waters, John describes the Spirit hovering over Jesus in the waters of the River Jordan. The first expression of man is what? Woman. What is the first expression of man in the Gospel of John? But woman, right? John is strategically wanting us to see something. There's an emphasis on days, Absolutely. right? Because if you were to go to John chapter 1, verse 29, we read the next day. If you were to go to John chapter 1, verse 35, we read the next day. Verse 43, the next day. John chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day, right? So there's this emphasis on days. Now, what's significant about that, especially as we develop this topic of relationship, Derek, is that that third day is actually the seventh day. Mm-hmm. What do I mean? Well, let's think about this. If verse 29 is the next day and 35, the next day from that day, and verse 43, the next day from the previous day, on the third day from the previous day, which is now the fourth day, is what? The seventh day. Absolutely. Now, I know a lot of our listeners right now have their heads probably on a swivel trying to do the math. <laughs> <laughs> but trust me, John chapter 2, verse 1, when it says, on the third day is also the seventh day. Why would John do that? Why would John give us this calculus problem? Because he wants us to see that what happens on the third day, the day of resurrection, new life, is what happens on the seventh day. Well, what happens on the seventh day? What happens on Sunday? We receive the Eucharist. Absolutely. And it is our own encounter with becoming what, Derek? What have we been talking about? A A new new creation. creation. A new creation. And you better believe that John wants us to see that not only in his gospel, but also in the book of Revelation. What do we read of? But the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. Do we not read in the opening chapter of the gospel of John, the Baptist identifying Jesus as the King of Kings, the Prince of Peace? No, the Lamb of God, who's come to take away the sins of the world. Yes, and, and as he reminds us on the cross, (laughs) he says, it is finished to, to consummate with our very souls. And what is the sole way that we can become new creation, but through Christ, through his church? Derek, this time flew by. As always, it's great to have you with me. Um, there's very little I have to prepare because I know you have so much on your fingertips, and it really is a joy for me to, to be in conversation with you and to, to have our conversations being... Uh, broadcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And always yeah. a pleasure for me to be here and join you as well, Joe. Amen, Derek. Why don't we go ahead and close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you a special thanks and praise for the gift and opportunity to reflect into the richness of your word and reflect into the beauty that lies behind so much of this imagery. And we thank you too, Lord, for the priests that you have given your church. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.com. Dot org.